Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today, we hit the second Sunday in our series studying the creeds. Last week, we celebrated the baptism of some of our folks here at Grace, and we studied the Apostles' Creed in respect to its role as a baptismal confession. Well, today we're going to go even deeper in looking at the Apostles' Creed and seeking to uncover its significance in history and therefore the role that it serves today in helping believers define who Jesus is and why our understanding of the Son of God as Lord is tied to the truths contained in the Apostles' Creed. Thanks for listening. Your beliefs will determine your actions. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Your beliefs will determine your actions. The way that you live, the values that you carry, the things that you spend your money on, the way that you divide up your time, it will all be determined according to what you believe. Uh, Because of this very fact, it is so important that we, almost rather than anyone else, as followers of the true living God, that we give an evaluation as to what it is we actually believe. And I frame the question this way. What is it you believe about what you believe? You'll find a lot of Christians believe in Jesus. Oh, sure, I believe in Jesus. You heard Maury this morning even tell that some people think that there is some arbitrary division between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. Um, I fear that what we will find, however, is that by Jesus' own words, that division is not even possible. There, There is no right or true division between calling Jesus your Savior and your Lord. And so we must ask the question, what is it that you believe about Jesus? Who is this Jesus that you say that you have faith in? Because your actions and behavior will be tied directly like a chain to that which you believe. We have uh, finished up a series on discipleship. And one of those verses that came out in our uh, text and our study came out of Matthew. Um, As we're studying the Apostles' Creed this morning, Jesus' words one more time, I want to remind you. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many say to me, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and have done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Even though you see arbitrary actions that seem to stem from this idea that they call Jesus Lord, there is a lack of transformation in their hearts. We know this to be true because Jesus' primary indictment to them is what? Right at the end. I never what? And so this becomes the primary issue. That was last series. That, That really was the issue of discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus that you know him and that your actions follow? Um, I want to point out two things that are conditioned upon this idea of knowing Jesus. And they're the words that come right before. The I and the never. If I were to break that down for you just very briefly. uh, this, This idea of having never known Jesus. It speaks to the importance of your and my requirement of having more than an intellectual assent to know about Jesus. You need to know him in a personal way, a way that brings transformation to a hard and a stony heart. 
I was two weeks ago on that short little vacation trip where I missed church. And uh, my wife and I, we went to Minneapolis. We went to uh, the Great Wolf Lodge. And there when we were checking in, if you've been to any modern hotels, what do they give you in order to get into your room? The key looks like a what? Looks like a little credit card, right? Well, they did not give us one of those at this particular hotel. And if you've ever seen one of these uh, Great, Great Wolf Lodge, they're kind of a water park that also has a hotel. And to get into the water park area, they give you a bracelet. And we didn't know this at first, but the key card is in the bracelet. So that, someone was thinking there. That's a pretty, pretty smart idea, but we didn't, we didn't know that. Um, you, in fact, could go up to the door of your room. You could be at the right place where your room was supposed to be, and you can jiggle that handle, and you're not going to get in unless you know the relationship you need to have with the door is one that involves the key card and the lock. You can stand there all day long. Standing there won't get you in. You have to go in the appropriate fashion. That's this idea of the never having known Jesus. You cannot find salvation. You cannot truly know him unless you approach him in the right manner, which is seeking to know him in a personal and intimate way, allowing Jesus to be your Lord, as we have seen many times this morning already. That is the avenue through which you and I find truly knowing Jesus, not just calling him Lord, not just lip service, but a change in our hearts where there is a relationship between you and the King of Kings. Again, you could stand outside that door all the all day, live long day. You can, you can jiggle that handle. You can pound on it, pound on it, but you're not getting in unless you go the appropriate way. The other word here is the word I. And in the same illustration, this one speaks to the fact that you need to make sure you are pursuing a relationship with the right Jesus. Jesus defined according to God's word. Uh, we read today, uh, or Peggy read for us out of 1 Corinthians, uh, one of the earliest creeds that we see from the church. The Apostle Paul saying that the message he was given is that Jesus came and died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and or he died and was buried according to the scriptures. And then he rose again and he appeared. That's the message of the good news of the gospel. That's the Jesus that you have to place your faith in. Um, it would be... Contrary to you, not finding the right Jesus would be like if you got, went to the hotel and they didn't tell you what room that this bracelet unlocked, which happened to my son. He, he was trying to get in the wrong room. And you, and you can stand there with the key all day long and you can have the right connection with the door, but are you getting in? Nope, you're just wrong door. You're not getting in because this is not the correct destination. That's what... I think and I fear for many Christians may be that which has deceived them. Uh, there are a lot of false teachings in our world today. And there are a lot of false Jesuses that are being preached. Wouldn't it be great if the church came up with a way of understanding and defining correctly, not only the relationship, this is the avenue by which you must come to know him. He is your Lord, but also knowing, and this is how you know you have the right Jesus. There actually is a passage of scripture that I'd like to turn our attention to as we're uncovering uh, the importance of the creeds. It's found in Matthew's gospel. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, our plan this morning is to really try to weave together these two dual necessities of the Christian faith. You must 
have the right understanding. And you must come to Jesus the right way. These must go together. If you only have one, you won't make it. One without the other is only a half ascent towards the transformation that must be made in the life of the Christ follower. You must have the right Jesus, and you must come to him, recognizing him as your ruler and as your Lord. Uh, What we're trying to do is we're trying to push those together this morning, and I'm going to keep doing that as we look to understand these creeds. Uh, Just before I read Matthew 16, I, I simply want to share what I feel like is a really apt story on this subject. It was... Oh, about 10 years ago now. Uh, one of my hobbies is I collect um, ancient out-of-print Bibles. In fact, I really love to find the earliest English Bibles. And there was one in particular written by Tyndale, William Tyndale, that I found uh, being sold on eBay for, for like a song. I mean, it was still quite expensive. Um, it was $1,200. and how much it was. But it's worth uh, at least eight. I mean, it, it, the, the value of this, because they're not making it anymore, right? This is the kind of thing. But I saw this, and of course, I thought, as any um, intrepid shopper would, what a deal, right? And I, I'm going to try to get it. So I put my bid in, and at the very last second, I was outbid. No, anyone up with me on eBay on that? Just come on. At last second, I was outbid. So, um, but then this curious email showed up in my inbox saying that the previous buyer, the winner, actually backed out of the sale and I was second. And so here the opportunity came my way. And if I wanted to, it could still be mine. And that greedy green eyes of mine read that email without recognizing it came from a spammed email address. And I thought, fantastic. So I began this dialogue with this imaginary person saying, that sounds great. What, how, how could I do that? And the reply came back, well, we're on vacation and we won't be back. And we just looked it up. And if you'd like to, you can send a wire transfer of money over to London. And I said, no problem. I could do that. And called back here to the States because I was on the mission field at the time. And we're penny pinching, finding where can I get the money together? And I asked my sweet mom to go to the bank and the bank attendant says, are you sure it's not a scam? Are you sure you, sure you want to do this? And she calls me and I said, no, it's not a scam. I'm not, this is my last chance to get it. And they took my money. And I'm still waiting for that Bible to show up. Right. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions on this little story that I have. Was my belief genuine? Yeah. Uh, was my sacrifice appropriate? Did I pay the amount that it said to be paid? Yeah. Uh, was my hope sincere? Yes, yes, and yes. But guess what? I was deceived. I was fed a lie. I walked down the wrong path. I knocked on the wrong door. How important is it for us today, church? That we understand there is an evil imposter out there seeking those whom he may devour and destroy. And he is a liar by nature to deceive the church at large. Woven into our world and our culture is a string of false teachers and false teachings that are wreaking havoc on the church. We must be those who are equipped to know who it is that we believe in and that he is our Lord. And so with that in mind, let's look right now at Matthew chapter 16. Um, I, I want to even preface this by just saying, if you had to ask me what is the most important passage of Scripture, I might 
put this in the running. This, this might be the most important passage in all the New Testament. Right here. So it's, it's a very, very big, big verse. Very important one for us to look at. Here we go. Verse 13 of chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. All right. That may not strike you as being the most important passage in all scripture. So let give me a moment here just to break that down for you. A few observations from this, this passage. As Jesus is encountering his disciples, his very first question that he asks is a question of definition. Everybody see that? It's a defining question. Who do people say that I am? No option here to get it wrong. You must get it right. There aren't two definitions to Jesus. In fact, what Jesus discovered by their answer, and knew this all along, is a lot of people were what? Getting it right or wrong? Who do they think Jesus is? Well, it must be John. John the Baptist is dead. How can Jesus be John the Baptist? Prophets are dead. How can Jesus be one of the prophets? You can see how they're letting their imaginations run with them as to who this new fancy rabbi might be. Are they right or are they wrong? They're getting it wrong. And so Jesus' question is designed so that his followers will define who he is. Who is this person that you follow? Who do people say that I am? That's the first thing I want you to see. Second thing is that Jesus phrases the question in verse 15 as he approaches them again in a personal manner. So as we're approaching this concept of salvation, we must understand the question has to be one that you answer. Nobody, nobody gets to heaven because their parents went to church. Oh, my, my parents were involved in the church. So that gets me in too. Who do, you, who do you say? You need to answer. There will not be for you on Judgment Day any other advocate besides you unless you have this one. Amen. Otherwise, it's on your own. You will have to answer. And so Jesus gives them that same opportunity. He comes and he says, after the defining question, he now makes it personal. What, what, I get what they're saying. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And then the last question that he offers uh, makes it confessional. This now has to be something that not only is personal from them, but now it's sourced from the position of their declaration. They make a confession. I say what about Jesus? I say it's confessional. It has to be spoken from their lips. And the lips we're told... Speak out of the overflow of the heart. So that which you find inside the heart, you should see confessed with our mouth. Does everybody see what a creed does here? The reason why I'm calling this a creed is because this is the very first creedal statement that we have. Look at the answer that Peter gives. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is a creedal statement. 
It's a, it's a propositional statement. It's an assent as to that which he believes to be true. It's personal according to Peter. It's defining according to who Jesus is. And it's confessional in that he's owning it himself, making it, really putting himself on the line to say, this is what I believe. You are the Christ. Now, I feel like for most of us, we've heard that word for a long time. In fact, I used to think Christ was just Jesus' last name. Like Jesus Johnson, and there's Jesus Thompson, and Jesus Christ, right? <clears throat> it's not true at all. I'm not sure how you understand Christ, but I'd like to break that down for you very quickly. It's actually the word Messiah in um, Hebrew, which we pronounce as Messiah, Messiah, right? Uh, Messiah as this Hebrew Hebrew word translated then into Greek as Christus, and we say Christ, means, you ready for it? The anointed one. The one who is anointed, which that's kind of bizarre, the anointed one. Uh, it has a meaning behind it. If you are anointed, it means there is a purpose behind the anointing. Now, you could use anointing in the Old Testament sense for a lot of different uh, purposes. There could be a lot of things that you were anointed for. But singularly, when we're speaking of the anointed one, it means the one anointed by God as the ruler. That's who Messiah was for them. So when they used the word Messiah, which means the anointed one, uh, they didn't think like we did. They just didn't transliterate it into a word. They knew it had a purpose behind it. Who's the anointed one? The anointed one for what? The anointed one for rulership. The anointed one to be the king. The anointed one to be the, and this is the important word, ready? Lord. That's what the Messiah is. And so when Peter says, you are the Messiah, or as we have it translated for us, Christ, he means you are the one chosen by God to be the ruler. You are God's man. You are the king. You are the one anointed to come and to rule. The problem with Peter and all of the disciples at this time, in fact, just Jewish thinking at this time, because of the oppression of the Roman government and because of all that they've gone through, the Jews did not see this Messiah as one who had to suffer for anointing, according to the Old Testament prophecies, wasn't just king, but it was one who would come anointed to suffer on behalf of his people and therefore redeem them from the curse of sin. That was included in this. They missed that part, though. When Peter says this right here, he's not thinking of that. When he says you are the Messiah, when he says you are the Christ, the anointed one, he's just thinking ruler, king. And we know this because Peter pulls Jesus aside in a later story and rebukes Jesus when Jesus says he has to go and suffer. He said, yeah, quit talking like that. We know you're going to be the Messiah. Thinking what? King, not one who's going to suffer. But here Jesus is the one who first will suffer. And then as the rightful king, by birth, by decree, before time began, Jesus was and is the king um, his coronation, it's really yet to come. That day, that day is yet coming. You know where Jesus is now. He's ascended onto the right hand of the Father and he's seated until he what? Comes again. And that day, there will be no question for every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Jesus is, what's the word? Lord. To be, in, to be the Messiah, to be the Christ, to be the anointed one, is to be 
the Lord. I don't want to leave the other clause here. It just it, there, There's really two statements within this creed. You are the Christ. But then he also says the son of the living God. It is, hear me now, it's impossible for Jesus to be Lord and Christ if he's not also son of the living God. He has to be the son of the living God. Otherwise, he's not the Lord. And so these must go together. This for us is the earliest creed that we have. And now let's see if we can unfold a little bit more about what creeds do. I have a few more observations for you. Number one, creed means I believe. We just say creed. It comes from a verb credo, which means I believe. That's what it means. So anytime that now you hear the word creed, you will know it's a statement of belief. This is something that I believe in. Secondly, the creed does two things. It preserves the faith and it protects the faith. The way it preserves the faith is it takes that which has been given to us in God's revelation, in God's holy word, and then by man's effort and many times locked into a historical context, it's boiled down to its bare minimum essentials. Hear me now. I didn't say substitutes. I said essentials. The creed is designed to be non-negotiable. You cannot remove any one piece. You don't get to add any other pieces either. These are required. And it's given to the church. And the church carries it and hands it down through generation to generation. And so it preserves the faith. Uh, We have... Um, in the past, picked berries. In the, anybody else picking berries in the in the fall? Come on, no berry pickers in Cibola. Yeah, a ton of berries in Cibola. Um, my uh, my wife and I, uh, actually, just my wife. She cans them and turns them into jam because I ask her to, and she's sweet like that. And um, what I have found though is, if you don't do that correctly, meaning if you don't let your wife do it, if you try to do it yourself, and you forget to get that lid to seal, do you know what will happen to those preserves? They won't be preserved. That's right. Because what is around them? Bacteria and all kinds of other little, tiny little microorganisms that I want to destroy the yummy berries that took you four hours to pick. So uh, what needs to happen? It needs to be contained and sealed such that you don't get to mess with what's in there. Everybody get this illustration? That's what the creeds are. The creeds are for you and I little containers of jam or truth that have been handed down to us, sealed and preserved, so that the faith you can know with certainty means you can pull it out of the cupboard and you hear that, you know, and it opened up the, the lid, right? It's good to go. That's what, that's what the creeds do. They preserve the faith. And then secondly, they protect the faith. Now, this second task of a creed is one that's contained within time and space. And what I mean by that is there have been in our history, in the church's history, opponents to truth. People who have come and who have said, uh, Jesus, let me redefine Jesus for you. He's actually different than the one you believed in. They're opponents to the truth. And what does the church need to do when it faces false teaching and false teachers? It needs to have something it can go back to to stand on as a foundation to say, hold on a minute. What you're saying right now differs from what was handed to us, which again is what we read out of 1 Corinthians 15. Just for my own sake, would you turn to 1 Corinthians 15 real quick? And I just want to point out something 
that Paul says before he even gives his creedal statements of the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Look at his words here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He says, For what I received, I passed on. Do you catch that? You'll read that and you'll run right over it without recognizing the preserving nature of what Paul is doing. What I got, what I received from the Lord, it's uncorrupted, it's unspoiled. And I'm going to pass it on down to you as well. He says right after this, how? As of... Yeah, is this a big deal to Paul? Yes or no? This is the first importance. What I received... I passed on, and the reason why Paul gives this is so that the church knows how to protect themselves against false teaching. Everybody with me on this? Amen, if you're with me. All right, so two things the creeds do. Creed means I believe, and what it does is it preserves the truth and it protects the truth. I'm going to build for you for about, give me about five minutes for this. We're going to build out some of what's been going on during the time of the writing of the Apostles' Creed. Um, I mentioned this last Sunday, uh, but we looked at it primarily in the, the uh, sphere of baptism. Um, I'm going to have it up here on the screen so that you can maybe get a better idea of it. False teachers are the issue that we're going to look at first. The first one I mentioned was Martian. Martian taught many things, and honestly, I could come, come to Bible study and ask me about him because I could go on long, long, long for all of the things that the church did in response to Martian, particularly being how we now have the Word of God codified, meaning we have the books that are inspired put together. It was this guy and his false teaching and his weeding through the Gospels and tearing some out saying, that's rubbish and who needs that? He took a knife to the Word of God. And I'm getting a little off topic here, but just go with me for a second. If you want to encounter trouble in your life, it begins step number one by departing from God's Word. In the garden, Adam and Eve, what was the first thing out of the serpent's mouth? Did God really If you want to have a life that heads towards sin and destruction, it begins by doubting and departing from God's word. So Martian did that. He he cut up the Bible. He threw out every Jewish writer. He mutilated the gospel of Luke, only keeping the parts that he liked. The church saw this and it said, hey, we... Let's make sure we've got a good answer for people who want to do this. And so they put together the Bible. Again, i got a lot more I want to say on that. But here's for our study what I want you to know. Number one, Martian taught the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New. Well, that's bizarre. No one's taught that before. First time the church is seeing this. You mean there's two gods now? I thought we were monotheistic. I thought we believed in one God. Uh, One of the readings that Peggy gave us this morning was uh, Deuteronomy 6. It is for the Jewish people, their creed. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. The Lord is? Meaning the Lord alone. None of these other gods. The Lord alone is your God. As for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And this turns up in the New Testament as well. I'm I'm not going to chase that road any further. Y'all with me on that, right? Okay, so here we have a false teaching by Martian. False teaching number two. He taught that an evil god, or he called him a demiurge, is the one who created the world. So, these two different gods, 
the, the one that we want to blame all the evil for, because that's what he saw. And I know you guys are, if you're, if you're tracking me this morning, you're going to be tracking with Martian as well. Have you ever looked around and saw that there's evil in our world? <laughs> A lot of brokenness in our world. Where does that come from? His response to his observation was to reject revelation and stand upon his own conclusion. It must have come from an evil God. Boy, that's a mistake. How many people today say, I, I'm not going to believe in a God that isn't powerful enough to, to get evil out of the world or, or who makes evil happen? I know if you've been around any non-believers long enough, that objection has come before you. It's not the first time that we've heard that. This teaching is coming directly from Martian in the church. By the way, I want you to know, Martian's not a guy who's trying to corrupt the church. He was raised Christian. He went to Rome. He donated a ton of money to the church to make buildings. And then he started to get into teaching these false things. So this isn't a guy on the outside trying to throw rocks at our windows. This is a guy inside the church bringing false teachings. All right, number three, he said that Jesus, Jesus was not Jewish. He was only a spirit being because remember, everything material out there was created by an evil God. So Jesus can't be made of flesh and blood. He can't be material. In fact, he's not Jewish either because the Jews were the ones who corrupted everything. Instead, Jesus was sent to the Jews as a spirit being. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Church has to have a response to this. He's one of our first heretics we have. But not only is it false teachers, it's also false teachings that are happening during this time. And you're going to see some parallels here. In fact, I promise you this. If you become vigilant today, you will recognize false teachers because they correspond with false teachings. Those things that are valued in our world today will be propagated by men and women who have a corrupted, darkened soul. The Bible calls them hypocritical liars who teach things that demons teach. That comes out of 1 Timothy. That's how you'll recognize them. You'll see continuity. So the main teaching at this time was something called Gnosticism. Maybe many of you have heard of Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. That's what the word means, to know. So this is a, a religion. This is a worldview. This is a philosophy of thinking that has to do with learning and thinking and understanding, that's the issue here. So here are some of the false teachings. Number one, they teach the world was created by an evil God. So where do you think Martian got his ideas from? The culture around him. That ought to hit you like a, like a lead brick right now. Do you hear what I said? Martian's false teachings came from his adherence, not to God's word, but the word of the culture around us. Warning for the modern Christian. Be very careful. How wrapped up you become in listening to those propagating lies from media and TV, on the radio, even bookstores. Boy, Christian bookstores are the worst. Uh, I mean, you need, we need to go there together sometime. Don't think that I'm just railing on Christian bookstores. You'll find some good ones there, but you will find shelves filled with heresy being propagated as truth from Christian bookstores. So be very, very, very careful what you're reading and how you're letting the culture Speak to your truth. That was Martian's problem. Gnosticism taught that the world was created by evil God. It also taught that everything physical is evil and everything spiritual is good. This is a form of dualism. I'm not going to go any further on that. I could talk for a long time on the philosophy of dualism. Number three, he, uh, Gnosticism taught you don't need forgiveness. What do you think about that? Humans don't need forgiveness. 
They need rather enlightenment. That was the whole philosophy of Gnosticism. You don't need to be forgiven. What you really need is to learn the secret knowledge that will cause you to ascend onto that higher plane, that you would understand the emanations of God and Sophia, the goddess from the great aeons. I mean, if I'm using language that's confusing, come to Bible study on Wednesday. We'll study Gnosticism more in depth. Number four, they taught that the resurrection is only spiritual. Okay. So those are false teachings of the world in that day. One last one I want to give you. It's called docetism. Docetism also comes from a Greek word. It means to seem to appear. It's the word dekeo. It means to seem to appear. There's a lot I could say in this. I'm going to boil it down just to one. They said that Jesus only seemed to appear in the flesh. Um, This is already burgeoning, this false teaching, during the Apostle John's writings. In fact, John will write in 1 John that anybody who says that Jesus did not come in the flesh is an antichrist. if, If you say he didn't come in the flesh... You're of the Antichrist. And you can only say he did come in the flesh by the Spirit of, God, Spirit of God teaching you. Four observations that come directly from this. Number one, Jesus didn't suffer then. He only seemed to appear. He didn't really suffer. Secondly, he didn't really die. He was a spirit being, not a fleshly being. Number three, well, you can't bury a spirit, can you? And nor can you raise a spirit from the dead. I hope as we've been going through this, you as the intrepid Bible scholar have been connecting that which you already know about the Apostles' Creed to these false teachings. In effort to be very clear on this, I'd like you to pull out your green hymnals. You have these somewhere in your pew. I want you to turn to the very back page where you find two stickers. One that contains at the top affirmation of the Apostles' Creed and then the Lord's Prayer. I also have it up here on the screen that the followers of Jesus Christ said we need to have an answer for these false teachers. We need to have an answer for these false teachings. And so when we're going to encounter these individuals who are leading the church astray, this is what we must confess. They said, first of all, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Not some false god. Not some lesser or evil God. No, is God the Father who created heaven and earth. Just a little quiz time for Sunday school if you're ready for it. Where did sin come from then? Everybody point to your neighbor and say, you. <laughs> yeah, now say it came from me. Sin did not come from God. Sin was a product of man's rebellion to God. I believe in God the Father Almighty the maker of heaven and earth. So they begin there. Hopefully you also, if you're really tracking with me this morning, see the connection there between what Peter said and what the apostles said. Do you remember what Peter said when Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Jesus, or, uh, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the what? The son of the living God. There's the living God right up there. First statement in the creed. All right, secondly, and I believe in Jesus Christ. God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Oh, time out, time out. You mean he was, he was born like as a person and not a spirit? Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. That's precisely what we're saying. He was conceived and born, not just as a spirit. Fully God, wrapped now 
in flesh to be fully man. All right, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So he was born, yep. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Each one of these is a, is a battlement shot into the face of false teaching. Each one of those is. Because they, the, the docetists, those who were saying he only seemed to appear, they couldn't hold to any of those truths. The church wanted you to know, no, this is the Jesus we believe in. You think he was a spirit being? That's like going over here knocking on the wrong door. You may be waving the, the, uh, the card to get in all day long, but you're at the wrong door. This entry is not the right Jesus. The Jesus who is true is the one who can be found wrapped in time and place in history, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. There's a few other things in here that are crucially important. Third phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the what? Of the body and the life everlasting. Um, I want to just um, submit to you, it will be worth your while if I went line for line and we spent one Sunday studying every line as to what it means. But today I'm trying to do it all in one. I know of a church in town that is doing the same study and they are going line by line. I highly recommend uh, catching the podcast or that sermon online or approaching me and saying, let's talk more about that. But for the sake of this series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be just looking at the broad streep of the creed and what it was doing. So to go back to our observations, first of all, creed means, I believe, secondly, it preserves and protects. Thirdly, it was used at baptism. That was last Sunday that we studied that. So to move on from there, finally, creeds define Christians. And they're kept by Christians. I cannot emphasize how important that is. The creed defines what a Christian is. Gnosticism is making a return in our world today. It goes by a different name. It goes by Mormonism today. So many of the same teachings from Gnosticism are woven into the teachings of Joseph Smith came into the church to start this sect outside of the faith. Now, they call themselves Christians. They say they're the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day. You know what it is, right? Yeah. Um, But they're not. Do you know why? They've left the creed and redefined things. So they're not Christians. They're something different from Christians. They are knocking on the wrong door. And creeds are also kept by Christians. So let me give you, let's see if we pull this together now. What Matthew chapter 16 had to say in our study over the historical importance of the preservation and protection creeds produce for the church. The first observation I have for you is this. For Jesus to truly be Lord, which we read in the creed, he must be the Christ, the son of the living God. I've already said to you that you need to have two aspects of how you approach God. Do you get to heaven if Jesus isn't your Lord? Remember what he said? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but he's really not their Lord. You remember what Maury said? Quoting the passage where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? And you might be remembering, oh yeah, we studied that in discipleship. Remember all the 
the attributes of a disciple? If you love Jesus, you will... Oh, you got it. Yeah, you obey Jesus. Um, do you, are you a branch that's broken off, or do you what? Remember the word? Remain. He who remains in me. Right? There are all these attributes that truly define what a Christ follower looks like. You will suffer with him. You'll listen to the Holy Spirit. You'll produce, or pursue unity within the church. That's what it means to know Jesus. And to call him Lord. But for him to be Lord, he must be the Messiah. He must be the anointed one. That's what Peter said. The Christ, the Son of the living God. And for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, he must be defined and confessed according to the truths of the Apostles' Creed. Hear me now. I don't want to lose you on the Creed. If you have the back of, the back of that um, page open again, it might be helpful to see this. Um, if Jesus is not the Son of God, can he be Lord? Yes or no? Say it like you mean it. Yes or no? No. If Jesus is not born of a virgin, can he be the anointed one? No. No. If Jesus did not suffer and die, can he be the anointed one? No. no. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, can he be the anointed one? No. no. Then he's just like every one of us. Just dead, right? No. He's not dead. He raised. I, I, I want to I point out to you, every line of this, is essential to the confession he's the Lord. Jesus cannot be Lord unless he is also all of these things. And if you take anyone away, guess what? He's not. He's not Lord. This is the conclusion that I want us to come to. Um, I have one point of application I want to give you, but just before I do, just two little extra bonus points in regards to the Apostles' Creed. Um, You might be familiar with saying he descended into hell. That may be the way that you've learned it. In fact, that is actually the way it's written here. Um, That one particular line, though for the writers at that time was not an issue, it has become a bit of an issue today in our world. Um, The word that was given there in, in the original language says that he descended into the lower places. And this is a reference to the Hebrew word sheol, which means The grave. That's what it means. It means the grave. Um, It gets translated into Latin as inferno. Inferno in Greek, uh, I'm sorry, in Latin also means lower places, but can also mean hell. And hell is a bit of a place that we have come to understand by the revelation of God's word, where there is torment and where those who are separated from God are kept until the day of judgment. Jesus didn't go there. In fact, what does Jesus say to the thief on the cross next to him? Today you will be with me where? In hell? There's a problem here, right? And the problem is with the translation that has to do with the Greek and the Latin into English. Because when we translate inferno in Latin into English, we get hell. And again, that concept was not a big problem for the first writers. But in our world today, as we think of hell... It's a bit of an issue. And so we would more properly understand what the creed is saying by translating, and you can do this in your head, and if you say hell, that's fine, but the, the reality is Jesus doesn't go to hell, this place of separation and torment. Jesus goes into the grave. He goes into the tomb. He goes into the earth. That's what the creed is saying. You with me on that? Everybody understand? If you have questions on that, I'd love to talk more at length and even provide some resources that help you see that a little bit clearer. The second thing I want you to see is you also may know at the end of the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy what? Catholic 
The Roman Catholic Church. That's right. Oh, hold on a minute. It doesn't say Roman Catholic. It says Catholic Church. And I've had a lot of people ask me. I don't know if we should be saying that here because we're Presbyterian, I think. We're not allowed to say Catholic. Um, the word Catholic is made up of two other Greek words, kata and holos. In fact, you find that prefix kata in a lot of other words. Have you heard of catacombs or catalog? Right? It's the Greek word that means according to. And so a catacomb is according to the, the tumbas or tombs. So the catacombs were these places where there were tombs, right? A uh, catalog would be according to the lego, which means to pick up or to take. So according to what you can take. That's a catalog. Everybody make sense, right? Well, kataholos means the whole, according to the whole. When you say Catholic, you're saying according to the whole. So when you say, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church, you mean the church according to the whole. We believe in a church that's larger than Sagola. We believe in a church that transcends the globe and transcends time, the people who have come before us, those that will come after us. That's what the word Catholic means. So in a very real, real sense, we're all Catholic. How about that? <laughs> that's great. Okay, here we go. Let's get to application. Here's my point. If you know Jesus as the Lord, that's what the creed gives you. That's the right door to knock on. You must know him as your Lord. And that's the relationship that we must have to him. Um, having a relationship with Jesus is essential. The transformation that comes to a stony heart is essential to us. You're not any more a Christian by getting baptized or going to church than you are a car by standing in a garage. You've heard that before? If I go stand in a garage, am I a car? And if you come stand in church, am I a Christian? No. There must be an appropriate change of heart, a relationship that's woven with Jesus. But you got to get the right Jesus. You with me? The creed gives us the right Jesus. And so, if you know him as the Lord, you must know him as your Lord. And this is the main question. What is it that you believe about what you believe? The most powerful thing that we can say as a people. And singing that song today as a community, I believe.